This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. That's right. We're back. Good Saturday morning to you. Welcome to Kane and Cup. Why are you taking a picture of me? That's not... Because it seems as though you might have given up. <laughs> the, the evolution, or should I say the, the devolution uh. of your Saturday morning wardrobe might just be complete. And what I want to do is take this to Twitter. No. We all remember shorts. Now he's pantsed. He is panted. He has pants on, ladies and gentlemen. However... He's wearing an undershirt. <laughs> it's a white T-shirt. It's an undershirt. And 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 uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Will Kane. you and I have had the conversation before about when an undershirt is appropriate to wear outside of a shirt. Well, we've had the, def- the conversation about the definition of an undershirt. What qualifies oh, this the is difference exactly between a this, white T-shirt and an undershirt. This photo is going on. No, it's not. Lo- oh, I yes, get, it is. I get approval of that. This photo I own. I let, own this photo. Let me photo. explain to you a couple things, first of all. <laughs> there were some key words in your diagnosis of me giving up number one saturday morning that i think that's very pertinent that's very very pertinent uh number two radio so it's saturday morning and i'm talking to you folks at home through the radio you can't see me look i can see you you're most likely in your underwear the odds are you're sitting around in your boxers digging the sleep out of your eyes having some coffee and you expect me to come in in a suit no we're okay, all on the same page here. In fact, it's communal. In fact, it's like a family. We have an understanding, all of us. It would be awkward if I walked in to your bedroom at 8 a.m. in a suit. You'd be like, what are you here, and, and where's the funeral? You're like, you're like President Obama. It's just false choices. Like, either we have to bomb Syria or do nothing. <laughs> I never said come in in a suit. That's preposterous. That's preposterous. I think, however, there's a difference between maybe like a Saturday morning shirt, like a polo shirt, a shirt with a collar, and an undershirt that I'm, I, I don't know, is it Fruit of the Loom? Is it Calvin Klein? Is it Michael <laughs> Jordan? Is it Haynes? Is it Haynes? Okay, a couple more points to make now. I've made my rebuttal to you now because this is the kind of That's guy. That's underwear. You're wearing underwear. Because this is the kind of guy I am. You're wearing underwear I'm self-aware. to the office. I'm self-aware and I'm honest, Okay. You're right. There is a little element of give up in this outfit, and I'm aware of it when I walked out. And my wife would agree with you. You need to have a collar on, even if it's a rumpled collar. It yes. should have a fold at the top of your neck. Agreed. And I haven't quite adopted that yet for a couple reasons. Um, I'm not ready to give up on summer. I'm just <laughs> yeah. not, okay? okay? I can't accept it, and the weather agrees with me. It's 90 outside. Yeah. Um, and I need some help on my casual wear, my, my, yeah. my weekend wear. Yeah. I've got a uniform for the week, right? I mean, I basically wear the same thing every day. But, like, when it comes to weekend... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wandering. I'm wandering in the forest. Yeah. I have no idea what to put on. We in don't the know who Weekend Guy is yet. R- for well, well, I mean, I know who Weekend Guy is. I don't know what Weekend Guy wears. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I need I, help it's on a, it. it's a, I have, a, I have a couple simple rules. Don't wear underwear out of the house. Oh, it's not underwear. It's 100% underwear, and also don't wear shorts to the office. Well, I'm not violating that one. So. Okay, we're going to come back to this, because what is the definition of an undershirt versus a white T-shirt? I think this is not clear. It's not clear to anyone. SE thinks it's clear. No, but, 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 but forgetting the definition, doesn't, it, doesn't all that matter is that 
to me, it looks like an undershirt. If it reads like an undershirt, it doesn't matter think, if it actually is one. I think we just summed up, A, your political perspective, B, your outlook <laughs> on the world. Doesn't it matter what it looks like to me? Yeah. Like, yeah. to me, to the SE Cup. That, to the outside world. No, no, no. Yes, to the outside world. You first world, personed that. You that, first personed that to you. But I'm the only one looking at you right now. I was aware of that when I put it on. That's all. <laughs> All right, that's an unplanned conversation. We're going to return to what's the definition of an undershirt versus a white T-shirt. But I'll put the photo on Twitter. People will will have to weigh in. You will not. Here is what we have coming up a little later this morning. Um, There was a fascinating documentary on CNN on Thursday night called Lady Valor. That's a little later in the show. And um, it's the story of a Navy SEAL, 20-year veteran, who uh, has transitioned into being a woman. And she will join us later in the show. We also are going to have to talk about my swim because clearly I'm here. Survived. Your unlikely survival. You know I'm in one piece because I'm wearing underwear to reveal most of my body. Mm. There were no sharks. I hate to jump to the uh, punchline. Mm. But I'm going to tell you about the enemy I uh, I was introduced to oh. last weekend on my swim during my midlife crisis in Hawaii. <laughs> but... We start out this morning with the awkward position that libertarians have found themselves in when it comes to foreign policy. The emergence of ISIS, if it has done nothing else, and oh, it's done many things, has made libertarians, of which I will largely count myself among that group, take a hard look in the mirror. What does a libertarian, a non-interventionist, do with ISIS what does ISIS say about your world outlook? How do you respond to something like ISIS? And there was no better proxy this week than the position of Rand Paul. Rand Paul, who is largely the libertarian icon, at least when it comes to politicians. You and I actually discussed this. What is the image of libertarianism? Like, if you had to say, you and I said it's Nick Gillespie at Reason, right? It's yeah. his black leather jacket. Right. I mean, um, if you personified libertarianism. of porn, Right. <laughs> Nick Gillespie, leather jacket, uh, new media. Yeah, a I mean, defense you, of pot and porn. If you took libertarianism and just— And that's not a slight. Poured it through, just, of course not. I'm saying— Poured it through a right. filter and it came out as a human being, it, it would probably come out, come out as Nick Gillespie. Gillespie. Yeah. Right. But if you were picking politicians, it's Rand Paul. Well, yeah, there aren't many actual practicing libertarian elected officials. And, uh, um, you know, most— most people describe Rand Paul as libertarian leaning or libertarian light. And now that his father's out of the picture, there's really no— Yeah, because he's less libertarian than his father. Sure, and there's no more mainstream— <laughs> How about this? There's nobody in mainstream politics more libertarian than Rand Paul. Well, I think Justin Amash is probably up there. So then we start debating whether he's in mainstream politics. In other words, he's not mentioned— I think as... Rand Paul is the most prominent face among go. elected officials of libertarian politics. I don't think he's always libertarian, but I think I think he likes to use that moniker when it's when it's politically effective. And I think some of his viewpoints are are libertarian. Except this week there seems to have been a shift. Well, yeah, he would not, you know, again, this is this is brilliant politicking and I don't mean this as a slight. I think what Rand Paul did this week in coming out in favor of action against ISIS was part of his political evolution. And that started months, if not a year ago, 
um, with some other big changes that Rand Paul announced. You have seen him softening on his position on Israel, his position against foreign aid to Israel. Um, he he met with Israeli leaders to discuss, um, you know, ways that they can sort of get him back in the fold. Uh, he's come out. He's come out. Uh, I think softer on a number of of issues that would make him more appealing to say the middle of the country. Um, and the last one, of course, would be on foreign policy and and foreign policy and interventionism or isolationism being one of the hallmarks of the libertarian position. This was a big one. So what he said was he was uh, being interviewed by Sean Hannity. And he said, uh, well, first he said to the AP, if I were president, I would call a joint session of Congress. I would lay out some the reasoning of why ISIS is a threat to our national security and seek congressional authorization to destroy ISIS militarily. That's a pretty big shift in rhetoric from someone who had earlier suggested Iraq was a mistake, Afghanistan was a mistake, um, the military is not the answer, the neocons have to sort of take a back seat. Now, he, he since came out on, on Sean Hannity and clarified, I am neither isolationist nor interventionist, he said. I'm someone that believes in the Constitution and believes that America should have a strong national defense and believes that we should defend ourselves. But when we do it, we should do it the way the Constitution declared. Okay. So he's massaging that a little. Let me make a couple points, first of all, and just so this conversation doesn't veer off into some uh, inaccurate directions. And I don't think you, uh, you, you understand the difference between these things. But I, I, I think the constant invocation of isolationism when you were referencing libertarians or Rand Paul specifically, you being a proverbial you, um, not U.S.E. Cup, uh-huh. is such uh, an um, – it's not only unfair, it's a purposeful diversion. Isolationism is vastly different from non-interventionism. Yeah. Isolationism is almost an absolute principle that you do not get involved in other people's affairs. That's Ron Paul. Non-interventionism. Is Rand Paul. Is – and I'm not sure Ron Paul is an isolationist. Ron Paul would also oh. perhaps be a non-interventionist, which is – you don't intervene unless you can identify a clear American national security I'll read interest. I'll you from Ron Paul's from Ron Paul's op-ed on ISIS in a bit. Um, we can argue about that in a bit. But the, but the, the it's, definitions. It's important to draw those distinctions. You're right. It is. But I also want to make this point. It can't also be understated how big a flip-flop this is for Rand Paul. Yeah. Because while you point out his positions previously on Iraq and Afghanistan, it's Israel. actually his position on ISIS over the last two months, specifically on the call to action here that has changed so dramatically. Um, you know, as recently as a month ago, uh, he was saying he was totally unsure about airstrikes, mm-hmm. whether or not it was appropriate to to commit to airstrikes with ISIS. Um, over Iraq the over Syria. the summer, on numerous occasions, he's addressed whether or not the president should be doing more with ISIS. He has number one defended the president's inaction. Number two said he is not sure what the appropriate um, recourse is for ISIS. Number three said he's mixed on airstrikes. I will give him this: much of the public changed its opinion with the beheading of James Foley. Is that what drove Rand Paul's shift? He needs to be asked. But if you look at the polling, and by the way. Se, I have a YouGov poll right here. A mm-hmm. year ago, mm-hmm. 63% wanted no action in Syria. Mm-hmm. Today, 60-something percent want action. Yeah. And now, what does that mean? 
action in Syria? Does that mean tip the scale one way or another with Bashar al-Assad? Does it mean destroying ISIS? That needs to be more specific. But the public is shifting, and Rand Paul seems to be shifting with it. Yeah. uh, Like I said, I think this is largely a political calculation. Look, you know, if President Obama is allowed to evolve on issues like gay marriage, Rand Paul is allowed to evolve on foreign policy issues. There are two differences, though, that I think are important. Um, Gay marriage and a position against gay marriage was not Barack Obama's defining political ideology. No one who voted for him voted for him because he opposed gay marriage. For Rand Paul and for libertarians, opposition to a hawkish foreign policy is a defining characteristic. Two, um, when Barack Obama evolved on gay marriage, that was entirely popular within his own party. Rand Paul's switch will, I think, frustrate some of his libertarian fans, some of the people in his base, not the whole of the party, but some people in his base. Let's do this. You're exactly right to say that non-interventionism is a is a core tenet of libertarianism. So it really the rise of foreign policy over this past summer and to the extent it continues to play a role over the next two years is going to put libertarians in a very awkward position come 2016. If if non-interventionism was so important in 2012 and in 2008, it doesn't look to be that way in 2016. So how do libertarians approach the world now? Well, how do they deal with ISIS? Let's take a break, though, and, and ask the audience that. I know we have I, – I consider myself somewhat non-interventionist. I consider myself very libertarian. How do we deal with ISIS, and how disappointed are we or not in Rand Paul? I, I want to ask the audience both those questions. 888-900-3393, please – Please call us. Join the conversation. Let us know what you think. Uh, 888-900-3393? Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of tweets supporting me, by the way, on my shirt. They haven't seen the picture I'm going to read them when we come back. They're about to. I'm going to read them when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. The next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup, is on. I posted it. I posted the photo. There's a photo of Will Kane. He's in his shirt. You can tell me if you think he's wearing underwear to, to the office. Rocky with an eye and and our producer Chris Knowles from Real News have both said it's Saturday. Leave the man be. I'm in my no. jammies. False. They don't have to look at you. <laughs> That's that's not cool. There we are again. It's all about you. It's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, several people have pointed this out. This is Oliver Darcy. He's a writer at The Blaze. And uh, um, another guy on, on Twitter whose handle is not a lemmings are both pointing out, thank God Will Kane's wearing underwear outside of the house. Oh, like it'd at be, least? It'd, it'd, it'd be awful if he's going. This is this is not a lemming. Uh, thank God he's not going commando. <laughs> well, that's true. Again, false choice. <laughs> No Oliver Darcy suggested. says, S.E. says, don't wear underwear outside the house. I think that might need some rephrasing. Yes. Again, again, these are not false choices. Like, wear no underwear or wear underwear. How about wear underwear and something over it? Mm-hmm. 
That's the other choice. And I believe you are probably selectively reading tweets. <laughs> but <laughs> because I'm, I'm not on Twitter right now, I will find some. 888-900-3393. Check out the photo. I, there's no doctoring. I posted what he's wearing. If you tell me he's wearing an, uh, an appropriate shirt for, for the office on a Saturday, I will let this go. But I'm sorry. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. Maybe I'm a prude. I don't think you wear undershirts to the office and, and, I didn't want to bring this up, Will. Here we go. But there's another element to this, and that is... My Jerry Seinfeld shoes? Your age. Oh, jeez. This is... I don't, I don't want to make this about your age, but if you were, say, 25, this might be a different story. I might care a little less about how you dressed. You're almost 40. <laughs> My wife would point out the same thing. You're almost 40. I've heard this before. You you need to dress for the job you want. <laughs> Can I just share something with you people at home? No matter where I go, I can't escape this crap. Home, work. You know how it is. I'm being judged everywhere I go. And I think you all know at home. You don't escape that with age. But, Will, did you or did you not say that you knew I was going to say something? The minute I walked in, I saw you look up. I go, all right. You knew it. You knew it. I admitted there was some give up to this. Yeah. yeah. You, you... I chose comfort. You chose to give up. You chose, chose to give comfort. up. Uh, there's, there's nothing, there's no difference between that shirt and a polo shirt in terms of comfort, except that it has a collar. There is. There what? Is. What? There's just a lot. Is it psychological? Yeah. Ugh. All right, Will Kane. Um, we're gonna take we're we're gonna we're gonna see what Twitter has to say. I will look at Twitter and see what Twitter has to say about your outfit. And who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm overreacting. We'll see. But back to uh back to the business at hand and and Rand Paul's quote unquote evolution on foreign policy. I'm not sure it is an evolution. Um, like I said on on Hannity, he's saying uh, he was never an, uh, an isolationist. It's a distinction you point out rightly, Will that I think he would call himself a non-interventionist. Um, but I, I think I think it's a little um it's a little dishonest to suggest that this is not a big change in his political ideology. I'd love to know what people at home think because I know we've got Rand Paul supporters. We've got libertarians in our audience. I wanna know do you think that Rand Paul has lost any sort of libertarian street cred by coming out in favor of military intervention to stop ISIS? Maybe you don't. Maybe you think this is totally fine. Um, maybe you're really disappointed. I'd love to know, 888-900-3393. But I think you bring up a really good point, Will, which is the bigger picture. Libertarianism for a long time, at least since, um, you know, the, the 2003 Iraq war under Bush, has been able to sort of morally justify either an isolationist or a non-interventionist foreign policy. And they've been on maybe the right side of history in their minds because a lot of their positions have turned out to be kind of justified. Right. And, and they, would, they would defend that. Um, it's easy to be non-interventionist during two unpopular wars. Two failing wars, exactly. Um, especially when politicians who supported those wars are being punished for those for those choices and are having to now justify those choices. Um, it's it's a little different though when you're watching two Americans be beheaded 
on television and you're confronting a threat as dangerous as ISIS. So uh, let's talk about that. What is the libertarian response to ISIS? Again, call in 888-900-3393. Let's get back to that after the break. You were listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup returns now. Got some strong opinions on Twitter. I really don't want to do this because I can already see where it's going. You see, when you call in, there's a little line here that says what you want to say, what you want to talk about, and it gives us the option of whether or not we really want to hear what you have to say. Eric, in Utah, I I don't think I want to hear what you have to say. I think I do. I think I definitely do. Eric, what do you have to say about Will's t-shirt? Well, first of all, I love you guys. I listen to you every Saturday morning. But uh, I run a men's clothing store here in Utah. Oh. And we sell all different color types of T-shirts, but they're all made to go under different types of clothing. Oh. Huh. Under clothing. Now, if it had printing on it, that'd be a different story because then you have a T-shirt. Sure. But if it is a solid color, it is an undershirt. False. No, Eric, Eric, I appreciate I really, this. I'm really, not, not going to cut you off. I'm really not going to hang up on call, you. Eric. <laughs> I, 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 you. At your point, Eric, I feel like I win. It's over. You have just said to me, if it doesn't have printing on it, it's an undershirt no matter what color it is because I was going to rebut you with this. Are you only putting white off? Like, what do you have against the color white, first of all? Um, are you only taking white T-shirts off the table? But you're telling me any T-shirt with blank plain, no printing on it, is an undershirt. If I'm wearing a teal T-shirt. That is correct. Yes, yeah. it's meant to go under a blazer False. or under a, a, a button-down shirt False. or under a sweater. Incorrect. That is Incorrect. not appropriate outerwear, Will Kane. No, and now I feel very confident in my outfit. I, Eric, you... How can you feel confident when Eric is an expert? I'm... We just had an expert. <laughs> we just had an expert call in to give a definitive answer. I am very big on the non-printed t-shirt. I don't I'm not a walking billboard in an advertisement. I like plain t-shirts yeah. and I don't just limit myself to white by the way. But I also see no reason to take white off the table. So I stand today in opposition to Eric and you for <laughs> blank t-shirts. All right, well thank you Eric for calling in. I appreciate your call and the matter's closed to me. But uh we got a lot of responses on Twitter. We'll get to those in a bit. Um because it, it, this has sparked quite a conversation. He didn't even bring up whether or not there's a pocket. He didn't bring up because it's unnecessary. If it's a V-neck or a crew neck. Because it's there's unnecessary. So many different factors here. Be- no, because it's so clearly solved. It's so clearly solved. Go solve libertarianism and foreign policy now. So, so back to back to libertarianism <laughs> and foreign policy. Um, I love our show. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is, this is an interesting moment for libertarianism and it's sort of personified by Rand Paul and what, what he's going through. Um, you know, Rand Paul, I think is making a political calculation, like I said, but what about libertarianism writ large? Um, what, what does a libertarian position on ISIS look like? And this is perfect because my criticism of libertarianism, uh, when it comes to foreign policy is that it's in almost impossible to apply in reality it's it makes for great theory really interesting conversation i think there should be a libertarian in all of us libertarian impulses in all of us 
But an application, it's really hard. I mean, now we have a real world example. I think that's what fair. would you do with your theory right. on foreign policy when the proverbial blank hits the fan? Right. What would you do? I actually think you you've you've nailed. It's not the Achilles heel of libertarianism, but it's the soft spot of libertarianism, and and, and it is realism. Yeah. Yeah. It's pragmatism. It's okay. It, you know, real lives are, are at stake. I have two examples that I think highlight your breakdown of what the libertarian foreign policy looks like. I have what I would call a non-interventionist position and what I would call an isolationist position. Okay. Maybe you would take issue with that those definitions. And, and again, at home, 888-900-3393. I'd love to know what you think of this. The non-interventionist position I got um, just online, it's from someone named Walter Hudson on the P.J. Tatler. He's talking about this argument. The question he asked is, what's the libertarian answer to ISIS? He offers one, and I, I think it's interesting. He says, opposing U.S. military in- intervention in Iraq does not mean one fails to care about the atrocities being committed there. It merely recognizes the appropriate limit of the federal government's authority. Have a private mercenary army you plan to unleash on ISIS? I'll gladly donate. But there exists no compelling state interest in spilling American blood and spending American treasure to protect non-citizens in a country halfway around the world. He goes on to say, if we re-engage in Iraq, it should be with the specific goal of utterly destroying a clearly identified enemy, in this case ISIS. We shouldn't look to win hearts and minds. We shouldn't look to nation build. So I would consider that the non-interventionist policy only intervene when a state interest is at stake. I would disagree with him that there isn't one in ISIS. No, but but I like the principle. It's targeted. And he's saying intervention is possible, but only when targeted to accomplish a singular mission, not to nation build, not to bring a political ideology to another country, but to— it's a decent- uh, approximation of my position, yes. which is the first question you should answer in any type of uh, debate over whether or not we're going to intervene is, what is the United States' national security interest? Right. I appreciate humanitarian impulses. I appreciate uh, global police <clears throat> thoughts. Uh, and I also value things, this actually would fall under national security interest, like protecting trade routes and so forth. Yeah. But you have to say to me, you have to answer for me what the United States' national security interest is. Now, we had on Real News this week, um, Charles Cook on, who I think from National Review gave a very interesting answer from uh, a, an Englishman, no, uh, no less, that uh, that there is a security, there is a national interest in responding to the death of an American citizen, the beheading of an American citizen, journalist or non-journalist, and is that sense that you touch one of us, we touch you, and it sends a message, and the idea is. You will not do this again. If you do, here's what will happen to mm-hmm. you. I like this principle better than the one that you and I have debated. We do not negotiate with terrorists. Uh-huh. I like the principle, you harm an American citizen, mm-hmm. we harm you. Mm-hmm. And you send that message wide and clear. So that's a targeted retaliation Yes, that you would support. My problem with um, what is the compelling national security interest Mm-hmm is that it is neither backward nor forward looking. It always, for a libertarian point of view, lives in the right now. And it, for me, it's important 
to be able to project, okay, what might the national security interest be in three, five, ten years if we do nothing now? Or let's look back at history. Was there an immediate national security interest, um, you know, before the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Was was there an immediate, visible national security interest? Well, we found out later that there was an existential national security interest. This is your strongest argument. Okay. <laughs> so, thank you. So, so the, the, the live in the now libertarianism, let's look at what's in front of us, I get, but it, it's incomplete for me. Well, let me, can, so may, let, yeah. may I, I told you this a moment ago. I think that uh, actually most libertarians now would support some action against against ISIS, that there is a, enough of a national security interest, despite the guy you just read, to compel a response. The strongest argument you just made is what would the libertarian response to ISIS have been two years ago, which I know ISIS didn't exist, but the conditions for ISIS's um, growth mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Well, but ISIS did exist Your non-action ago. in but Syria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. ISIS existed two years ago. They were part of al-Qaeda still at that point. They're still uh, – well, they, 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 they only were, broke off in the last year. ISIS has existed since the late 2000s, late two, 2008, 2009. I think ISIS broke off from al-Qaeda just in the past year. Anyway, we'll figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But your point is the national security interest now is clear. A year ago, it wasn't, but it was on its way. And what would yeah. libertarianism have done with that? Well, I think the other – right. And I think if you want to look at what libertarianism in its purest form thinks about ISIS, you got to ask Ron Paul. And we'll take a break, but when we come back, um, let's talk about what Ron Paul had to say because right after his son, Rand Paul – Right. Talked about what he would do. Ron Paul issued his own op-ed. He's not ready to go, he's not ready to go quiet into the night. No, he is <laughs> not. No, he is not. Uh, prodigal son or not. Ron Paul had some things to say. And, and I think this 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 will be an interesting argument. Again, call us 888-900-3393. Coming up, Kane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. and S.E. Cup return. So Ron Paul has issued a statement um, on his website about ISIS. And I don't know, I'll read you some ex- from extracts. Ex- ex- what am I trying to say today? <laughs> I think he said it. Ex- extracts. <laughs> it sounds wrong to me right now. Uh, pregnancy brain. Um Will, and you can you can tell me what you make of this. Right. I would consider this a bit more isolationist than the previous position I, I outlined from, from libertarian quarters. He writes, um, predictably, the neocons have attacked the president's hesitation. They believe the solution to any problem is more bombs and troops on the ground, so they cannot understand it. Uh, of course, for Ron Paul, like anything, this comes back to the Federal Reserve. If the neocons have their way, the Federal Reserve will print more money to finance another massive U.S. intervention in the Middle East. Take issue with the word massive, but we'll put that aside. In reality, this means further devaluation of the U.S. dollar. He goes on to say, The emergence of ISIS is the mother of all blowback. The neocons who want us to get tougher on ISIS, including a U.S. attack on Syria, 
are the same ones who not long ago demanded that we support groups like ISIS to overthrow the Assad government in Syria. Never support. I never supported supporting groups like ISIS to overthrow the Assad regime. So, again, a, a lot of false choices in here, I think. He says, why can't the interventionists just admit that their support for regime change in Syria was a terrible and tragic mistake? A lack of strategy is a glimmer of hope. Here's a strategy. Just come home. There's a lot of different points there that are both um, solid and weak. Mm -hmm. And so this is the ultimate blowback is false. Uh, People, organizations, ideologies like ISIS will exist regardless of the presence of the United States of America. He's correct to point out while you might not have supported the arming of isis you were you had enough hubris and i will also uh (laughs) you had enough hubris to think you could tell the difference and that even if you could tell the difference that the arms wouldn't flow from the free syrian army over into the jihadists and so the truth of the matter is western neocon interventionists two years ago essentially were on the side of isis and al-qaeda now i know ideologically you weren't I know in a lot of every way except the actual realistic uh, way of the world, you weren't. But in the real world, you were. They were on your side to overthrow Assad, and you would have had a hard time keeping your arms, your support from going directly to them. Well, let me just let me just clarify. I was actually a lot more hawkish than that. Right. I was not on the side of arming um, a group of terrorists. Just I do it ourselves. On, exactly. <laughs> right. Why? Why do we need to uh, have proxies? take down the Assad regime, I thought we could do it ourselves. And I saw an urgency to do that because groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda were swarming around and exploiting that power vacuum, and I could I could foresee this kind of scenario evolving. And for humanitarian reasons and lots of other reasons. I thought targeted airstrikes on Assad's regime would have been advised early, surgical, and and preventative. So I think one to one here, one weak point, one strong point for Ron Paul, not blowback, mm-hmm. but you neocons uh, really mm-hmm. are in an odd position because a year, two years ago, you would have effectively been on the side of ISIS. Um, point number three is the tipping point, uh, which is weak, and 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 will ultimately then rule it against him, mm-hmm. <laughs> two to one, and that is that uh, that. This sets the preconditions. Calling for the ouster of Assad sets the preconditions for for organizations like ISIS to flourish. The problem there is autocrats were falling across the Middle East with or without the presence of the United States. In Egypt, Mubarak went away because we didn't act. We could have, If we could have done something there, it would have required our support for the autocrat yeah. to keep the jihadists and Islamists from actually gaining power. Um, mm-hmm. In Tunisia, in Iraq, everyone had their own Arab Spring, and these guys would have found rooms to exist in that chaos, whether or not the United States was present or not. So that doesn't necessarily support the non-interventionist or the interventionist. It's just telling you the way the world is, and they would have been there. Now have your debate on whether or not you need to be in the mix or not. Yeah, so I think Ron Paul's, let's all just go home, is an incomplete, impractical... um not sort of forward-looking or backward-looking foreign policy that he has the luxury of saying from a computer um, because he's not actually making the decisions of whether or not to save American lives, the lives of other Christians and Muslims around the world, to, to project out and think, okay, is this going to be a threat to our national security in the future? Um, I just think it's a little 
indulgent. Uh, not a little indulgent. I think it's a lot indulgent. And I think Rand Paul's, look, I am pleased that Rand Paul evolved on this. Um, political calculation or not, it was a problem for me, his, his point of view on foreign policy. And this gets him closer, though not all the way, closer to my, my position on these issues. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that he evolved. Um, I, I think he's going to lose a little credibility among libertarians, though. You want to announce your defeat? There's no defeat. Um, Twitter seems divided. I will read some tweets. Divided like Someone 80%, says, 20% is divided. No. So, Think Freely says, definitely an undershirt. I have another one here who says, it's not under anything. That's right. So it's not an undershirt. Many are pointing out the material. It's thick enough not to be an undershirt. It is not. Someone here says if it was on a hanger, it's a shirt. If it's in a multi-pack, it's underwear. I'm I'm positive that was not hanging in your closet. I've got someone that said you looks like you should be working on a car. I agree. This big, I'm sure, isn't over. Talk about my swim when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to Kenny Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. We're going to get to the fact that I survived my midlife crisis. Shockingly. Weekend, uh, in just a moment, but apparently you people have no interest in the uh, ISIS predicament, predicament for libertarianism and instead are very, very invested in this debate about what qualifies as a t-shirt and what yeah. is an undershirt. It's a big deal. It's, it's a big, big deal. deal. I heard on Twitter, I just want to, to make it clear you are now being compared to this. Mm. This is from Brando. Elizabeth C. on Twitter. She says, I predict Essie Cup post baby, sweats, ponytail, no lipstick, and hubby's t-shirt. Right. <laughs> um, which, granted, that will be me in the house. It will not be me at the office. But that is now the comparison, right? She's essentially saying that's what you're wearing. You're a fashion totalitarian. <laughs> I just I copped that from Twitter. Mark and Marilyn, this is what I like. I like somebody who can um definitively give us the criteria <laughs> for the difference between a white t-shirt and underwear. Well, let's see if I agree with him first and then we'll call it definitive. Mark, what is the definitive criteria? Okay, SE, you're going to go out and you're going to buy a set of sheets. You want a nice high thread count on those sheets, don't you? Yeah. You like that good bolstered stitching yes. on all the seams, right? Yes. Well, you look at the shirt. If you can basically see through it, and if it's only got a single stitch on the seam on the inside, it is an undershirt. It's uh-huh. an undergarment that must be worn under some other type of shirt. Okay. You're making next. Will happy because I can... I'm pointing out as you talk, Mark, two okay. seams. Next. <laughs> if it's double-stitched, it can go either or way. Uh-huh. If it's triple-stitched or oh. quadruple-stitched... Wow. It is definitely an outer T-shirt, and it would be too hot to wear as an undershirt mm-hmm. or an undergarment. I've got, Mark, I've got double-stitched, yeah, not translucent. You cannot see through it. Uh, fitted-ish. It's not fitted little, at all. A little loose. Yeah, this one's it's not fitted. 
Um, you you do. There are two stitches. I can see them clearly, which Mark would suggest could go either way. So I think I win. <laughs> Thank really. You. Um, also, you can apply this same adage to this libertarian outlook on oh. the ISIS situation. Uh, we're not really supposed to be going over there teaching another form of government or another form of life to anybody else. Uh, if they go attacking uh, U.S. citizens, you make it plain and simple. You don't go in there to win their hearts and minds. You bomb them back to the Stone Age, make it a sheet of glass, and that will win the hearts and minds of everybody else in that part of the world that, <laughs> hey, don't mess with them. You leave them alone, they'll stay in their borders. If you start messing with the Americans, they will step out of their borders and bomb you back into the Stone Age, and not just you, your children, and your wife, but including your goats. Okay. Well, thanks for the call, I Mark. like it. I mean, honestly, I do. I do. <laughs> All right. Um, um, uh, I think the lesson out of that call is could go either way. <laughs> Could go either well, way. Well, while his T-shirt analysis could go either way, I didn't see <laughs> similar um, either or opposition on his uh, ISIS analysis. Yeah. Um, okay, so I told you folks a few weeks ago that um, ASE has, has indicted my age this morning. Well, as a self-aware human being, I recognize that um, youth is largely behind me. And um, as I approached middle age, there are things I wanted to do. And one of those things is with some buddies who I've grown up with, all since I've known, most since I've known since I was very, very young, Sherman, Texas, um, wanted to swim, do an open water swim. And we decided that we were going to swim the 10-mile channel between Lanai and Maui in Hawaii. And we did that last weekend. Now, oh, Bravo. <laughs> congrats. Now, she's so dismissive. No, I hated this idea. I hated when I heard about it. I hated that you did it. I'm not I'm not excited for you or happy for you that it's over. I think it was dangerous. Your tone towards me this morning is going <laughs> to turn people off. <laughs> I think it was dangerous. Those are like shark infested waters. It All was right. an unnecessary risk. Uh, so so this is what's interesting. I want to share with you guys uh my weekend. Um the shark conversation was the primary conversation leading up to the event on Email, we joked with each other, we considered investing in the shark shield, which is essentially like an anklet that trails a, uh, a, a electric probe BS. behind you. BS. Well, that's why we ultimately didn't buy it, yeah. although there are others that swear by it. Okay. Um, we looked at, although we weren't going to wear wetsuits, the, the technology supposedly being developed out there of like camouflage wetsuits that throw sharks off. It's not the same kind of camouflage what? you'd wear in the jungle, what? but it's more angular and it's oh, like please. navy and then and then light blue. Okay. We looked at all of these things, and sharks were our primary concern. Okay. No doubt about it. And every wife of every team yes. member talked about sharks. Yes. Sharks occurred during the swim as a thought, as a fear, 1% of the time. 1%. You're saying while you were swimming— you thought about sharks 1% of the time. Initially, when you jumped in the water, yeah. you thought, I wonder. Oh, my God. That is so scary. And then it was over. Okay. And here's why. I uh, <laughs> I think of myself as in decent shape. Um, I thought of myself in, in decent shape. I've been swimming my entire life. Mm -hmm. I started competitively swimming when I was six. I played water polo in college. I've surfed. The ocean doesn't intimidate me. Mm -hmm. I'm a new man. 
That's hubris. It was hubris. <laughs> I oh, learned. Wow. The ocean. Now, this channel from Lanai to Maui is about 250 feet deep, which is actually fairly shallow for an ocean. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's, a re- it's the reason it's like that, by the way, I see. Uh, well, not the reason, but w- one of the things that happened because of that is the whales, the humpback whale population. <laughs> yeah. <that's- laughs> The whale population, the humpback whale population, actually migrates from Alaska to this spot between Lanai, Molokai, and Maui to have their babies. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What do you call those? Calves? Yeah, calves. Cows. Yeah. So why why is it so shallow? That it just happens to be shallow between those three islands, all of which were created by volcanoes some uh-huh. thousands of years ago. So it's protected largely from more open ocean. Okay. But that being said, two hundred and fifty feet, ten miles across. You're talking about a body of water that I became very in awe of. I've been swimming in pools, lakes, ponds, and in the ocean within 100 yards, 200 yards of shore for quite some time. It's a different animal out there. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you're talking about water, and I'm holding my hands up Mm -hmm. with you, right? And on top of this big body of water, you are this tiny thing, right? Yeah. And so what I'm telling you is the currents, the swell. The chop mm-hmm. are so strong. Mm-hmm. As you swim up there, I'll show you a picture. Mm-hmm. You are a little piece of flotsam on this. <laughs> and trying to swim in that, we each did 30-minute turns. It was utterly exhausting. Yeah. And you did not have one chance to think about sharks. Really? Because you never hit a cardio rhythm. You, like runners who, who run marathons can kind of find themselves in a, in a, in a rhythm. Mm. None of that. I, this was more akin to being in a fight. Like Ugh. where a wave splashes your arm on a breath, you you inhale a ton of water, so you have to breathe again. It's constant, constant motion, yeah. constant mental activity. Yeah. One of my friends is like trail said it's like trail running uphill, um, for 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 an hour and a half. That sounds you terrible. Watch. But see, if I show you this picture, I don't think you'll appreciate the 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 fight in the chop. You see that right there? This is on Twitter. I posted this so people can see it on my yeah feed. yeah. It doesn't really. No, that's choppy water. I mean, as someone who who goes fishing a lot in open water, that's choppy. I can tell. I can tell for sure. And when you're in it, man, that it's just tough. boom, boom, boom in your face and your arm. Oh it my was, god! It uh, was. It was way harder than I thought it'd be. Did and you see like jellyfish? Did you see nothing. anything living? Nothing. So to the, wow. to the extent that you actually do get to peer around, did you see a giant all shrimp? You see, no. <laughs> You did that story on Real News last night. Of well, how big was that? Terrifying. Shrimp? How big was that? Shrimp? It was like man sized, like ten feet. <laughs> no, the extent that you got looked around, all you saw was blue, 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 blue. That's it. You know, when I'm on a boat, I always do this thing where I find the coast and I say, okay, if I had to right now, could I swim to that coast? I used to think the answer was yes on all those. If the plane right. goes down I and I can there. see land, I could get there. Look at this land, right? Just in that. Picture it looks again. close. It looks close, right? I could do that. Have fun. No, You're drowning. I, I, but I, You're but drowning. I know that I wouldn't want to. Can I tell you something? Yeah. You're a dead woman right here. <laughs> I would never survive. <laughs> well, I would be so panicked. My mind would work against my body in that situation. I'd be so panicked about sharks and other marine life. I don't even have to get, it's not even sharks for me. It's like needlefish. I mean, I'm terrified of everything in the ocean unless I'm yanking it out with a fishing pole. I, my mind would shut down. I'd go into shock. Like, there's no way I could do that. No way. Well, I want to do it again. What? I want to do better. What? Yeah. We all, We're not over this? We all got out of the water, interestingly, with the same mindset like this. Uh, throughout the entire 
your rotation, you are the worst. You're such a wussy. Why are you doing this? Everybody's so disappointed in you. They're looking at you right now. Swim. Do you try hard at anything in life? We all went through this in our minds and we got out. Everybody's like, good job. You're like, don't patronize me. (laughs) We all would like to go and do better. You want to go and kill it. We did it in four and a half hours, 10 miles. The winner of the English, the world record holder of the English Channel Crossing was in the race. Team from Australia. Oh my gosh. They were awesome. By the way, one other point and then we'll go to break. This absolutely blows out of your mind what a athlete looks like. You have no idea. Mm. There were 65-year-old men. There were overweight people. There was every form, shape, and age of person in there, mm. and they were fast. Some of them were slow. You just cannot tell. And I was so impressed mm. with these 60-something-year-old men teams, and women for that matter, teams, who were faster than us, yeah. way faster than us. Very, very impressive. I can't believe you're going to do this again. Got to do better. Wow, that's terrible. All right, so, of course, when you go to Hawaii on the weekend, you take, like, two, 12 hours worth of flights each way for a three-day trip. Yeah, that's brutal in and of itself. And it really brings up some questions about plane etiquette. That and <laughs> the fact that numerous planes have now been diverted over who gets to recline. Yeah. Diverted. Landed. Who gets recliner space? We're going to sort all that out when we oh, come good. back on Kane and Cup. <laughs> this is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Somebody cut me deep. That cuts deep. Yeah, for some people that might be a compliment. It's not for you. I did say to you, to be fair, a lot of my Luke Bryan dislike has to do with his personality. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, I don't like his tight jeans <laughs> and his attempts at dancing, which fe- are awful. He fell off the stage. I told you he fell off the stage again this week. <laughs> Second time. Look, Luke Bryan, I'm sure, is a nice guy, sort of a church geek, um, but I-, I would not call him fashionable. Cuss on them Mondays. Pray on him, son. There you go. There a, you go. That's another thing, Will. Don't do accents. Don't sing. Yeah. I've been told this at home, like after the show. <laughs> Look, I mean, it's we're just looking out for you, Will. We're just looking out for you. Um, Yeah, so you took a long flight to get to yeah. Hawaii in like a weekend. Right. That's murder. It was bad. That's bad. Um, I'm on planes a lot as well. I was on my la- the last flight I'm allowed to take as a pregnant person right. I took. Right. This past weekend, um, went fishing in the Bahamas, and it was two and a half hours, and that was just enough. <laughs> I am pregnant enough now. It's nothing. No, but as being pregnant, it's not comfortable. Right. And so that was enough. I was ready to get off that plane. Um, it's hard to get comfortable on a plane. Easy to get drunk on a plane. <laughs> oh, no. According to the song. <laughs> But, uh, according to Dirk Bentley. According to Dirk Bentley, who was, by the way, singing at the Bahamas Hotel. Really? That I was at this past weekend. Hmm. Anyway, diversion. For the third time in nine days, a plane was diverted over a fight uh, about reclining seats. In this particular situation, I'm sure people at home have heard about the other ones. In this particular situation, a passenger was trying to sleep on her tray table. I've done this. 
Have you, have you tried that? No, I don't understand people that do. It looks miserable. I, I think a guy your height could, couldn't do it. Yeah, he'd be, I, don't, I couldn't hunch over far enough. No, but someone like me, I'm not surprised it's a woman, someone, you know, kind of petite like me can do it. It's an interesting trick. Um, she's trying to sleep on her tray table, and then the person in front of her reclined her seat. Ouch. So she got really upset. Yeah, you look at this. Okay, but by the way, you indict the recliner in that situation, right? Wrong. Oh, you're a recliner defender. Yes. Does the, does the seat recline? Then it's the recliner space. 100%. Yeah. There are others, by don't the way. Don't make a seat recline. Some, like like on Southwest sometimes, the, the, the seats don't recline. Right. If you don't want me to take advantage of this technology, don't give it to me. <laughs> I will take advantage of the technology. Yeah. I think the recliner is totally in the right, maybe inconsiderate. Oh, well, that's true. You've told me you might turn around and see what the situation behind you is. I usually try to do that. Yeah. That's nice. I don't. I recline. <laughs> you do, if, do you do it with force, too? I know it's those people. They neither look back, and then they act like no, it's I like they're in. chopping wood. They press that <laughs> button, and they lunge backwards. No, no, no. Because I know someone might be on their tray table or have their laptop out or whatever. I ease back. I got to tell you, if someone if someone asked me, ma'am, could you not recline, I might consider not reclining. Probably not in this state because I'm pregnant. But, um... I do defend the recliner. The seat reclines. I'm taking advantage of that technology. Not everyone agrees. You know those knee defender people who have right. come up with, with like counter, counter defensive technology, right? To um, oppose the reclining technology. Yeah, you put the knee defender on, and the guy in front of you cannot recline his seat. By the way, it'd what be a interesting. Jerky move. It'd be so funny to video. The attempt at reclining and the realization someone has taken an offensive <laughs> measure against you. Like, this chair didn't work. I can't get it back. Yeah. And then when it dawns on you, the guy behind you is preventing it. Yeah. You would go through like a I am so aggrieved situation. Yes. <laughs> what you? What right do you have to take this technology away from me? Right. But so this brings up a lot of questions about plain etiquette. Like, it's not just the reclining, which we're all negotiating right now. I don't know why suddenly this is like the new issue. Right, it's As not, it, it's not mean, new. They, 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 they've they've uh, taken space away. The airlines are pushing seats together, making it tighter. So the recline, the recline is getting in your lap more than it was five years ago. I guess that's true, but I, I don't know why all of a sudden it's it's like the new front of airplane etiquette grievances. Yeah, but there are some others, and I'd like to pose these questions to you, not because you're an expert. Well, <laughs> I might disagree with you on some of these, but I'd like to get your take. What is the etiquette when you're on a plane about the armrest? Who gets the armrest? That is uh, all about uh, alpha dog. So it's 100%. If you can get it. First come, first serve. If you can get it, it's yours. It's not first come, first serve because you can also edge someone out. <laughs> like, oh, like muscle someone over? Well, but it's slight. So, like, if he leaves a little space behind his elbow and you can get yours in there, and you're like, hey, well, it's, it's, oh, that's, that's vacated space. Sneaky. And then over time, you just ease yours forward uh-huh. and he's off <laughs> yeah. the front. Right, 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 <laughs> right. You know what I hate? I hate when bigger people sitting next to me think that because they're bigger, they can come into my space. You don't like the knee invasion? Well, it's knee, it's arm. I know I'm smaller and not taking up all the space that I'm sitting in. That doesn't mean it's yours to take. You don't get my leftover space. It's still my space, 
and sucks for you that I have some left over and you don't. But the knee, the wandering knee is somewhat involuntary. As a guy, as a tall guy, like... I do not accept this. It takes muscle. You have to keep yourself flexed to stay in this position with your knees together. Yeah. And if you relax on a three-hour flight, you're going to naturally do this. Let those knees kind of drift out and it will get in your space. And look, I'm sorry. If I, I can't really, flex for three hours. Well, look, <laughs> if I wanted to just naturally relax, I might end up on your lap. I'm sorry. We all have to be aware and courteous about the people next to us. So don't you, wander into my space. Yeah, you did pay for it. Um, you and I had this I paid debate. for that space. What, what about the shade? Yeah, so that's another one. The window shade. Who decides if it's up or down? The guy with the window seat. Because I would always like it down. Well, the guy with the window seat, he gets to be a totalitarian on that. Yeah, he gets to be a jerk. It's like... But it's his right. Well, yeah. I mean, you get the window seat. You're... you're I, I guess you're, you've decided, you've chosen that that seat for a reason because you want to look out the window, presumably. But um, if I'm trying to sleep, I don't care if it's like 11 a.m. If I'm trying to sleep and that sun is blaring in, I'm pretty mad at you. you and if you see me trying you to say sleep... Something? Oh, I have asked. I've said, would you mind putting that down? Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. That's allowed. And then when he says no, that's okay, too. Well, that's that's just a terrible person. Um, Would you eat fast food? Oh, we talked about that one. Bring fast food on the plane with the smell invasion. It's discourteous. Yeah, but you do it. But you get, but it's not against I you. once brought two double-doubles from In-N-Out on a plane. All right, why is the State Department turned into a sorority house? Of it. When we come back on Kane and Cuff. <laughs> This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. women that I, I really want to respect. I have a ton of respect for people uh, at the State Department in official capacities. You know, I like to talk about foreign policy. I'm not an expert on foreign policy, but I love it. And I've often thought like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to live and breathe that and work at the State Department and really get my hands into that? Like people like Jen Psaki and Murray Harf do. I'm so embarrassed for them. And it really disappoints me because I have nothing against them. I'm sure they're nice people. And, in fact, I know that they are nice people. But what what's going on at the State Department is, like, inexcusable. You're talking about Jen Psaki and Reharf, both spokeswomen for... State Department. The State Department. Take to the podium on a daily basis, address questions from the media about... They make statements. They hold briefings. They take right. press questions. Um. And increasingly, they tweet in official capacities. They right. use social media in official capacities to get foreign policy messages out there, um, which I don't mind. Look, government has to use social media. I think that's an important tool. But what's going on at the State Department is inexcusable. It's an embarrassment for all of us. Let me let me walk you through um, the latest. And it, uh, let me say, it is the latest in a long line of embarrassments over there. 
it's like the teachers are gone and there's a substitute in. And so they're just running, running amok. This week, in the midst of everything going on, let me just remind you of what's gone on this summer. We have seen gruesome beheadings. A passenger plane literally shot down out of the sky. Civil War, genocide, an Ebola outbreak, and the collapse of entire countries. And what's going on at the State Department? Marie Harf is in a fight with Bill O'Reilly. And this is not like on her downtime. This, this is, is from the podium. In official in an official capacity. She tweeted after Bill O'Reilly suggested that Jen Psaki, who is a spokeswoman at the State Department, uh looks a little in over her head in this job. So she tweeted in defense of her friend Jen Psaki. Saki explains foreign policy with intelligence and class. Too bad we can't say the same about at O'Reilly Factor. Okay. Um, I don't think that's a responsible use of her official Twitter handle. But she didn't stop there. In a State Department briefing, she went even further, suggesting that Bill O'Reilly was sexist. Here's what she had to say. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to... Give more than 140 characters here. I think that when the anchor of a leading cable news show uses, quite frankly, sexist, personally offensive language uh, that I actually don't think they would ever use about a man against the person that shares this podium with me, I think I have an obligation, and I think it's important to step up and say that's not okay. And quite frankly, I wish that more people would step up when men say those things about women in public positions and say that it's not okay. So you don't think that that the criticism would have been directed at a, at a man who had replied, who had I given similar similar answers from some from of the that podium? language? We've seen it before. Was would I? No, I don't think would be used against a man. Some of the language used about my colleague, I don't think would be. You know, wow. uh, let me let me just this if you can cut it, Jose. You know what? Let me take that piece by piece. Not only has Bill O'Reilly criticized men, he has criticized men. As far up as the president for exactly that, for being in over their head. Bill O'Reilly has written columns. He's gone on television and accused President Obama of being in over his head, ill-prepared for the job. It's absolutely lazy and offensive to launch an attack of sexism against someone else when it is so easily proven false. You're you're 100% right, but you're also debating this on its merits. and. In my opinion, it's embarrassing and unsurprising that the State Department is involved in a cable news debate. You have reduced the podium of the State Department to what you and I do on a nightly basis, being having our heads put in boxes while a cable news host mediates a all-too-often superficial debate. Sure, she's played identity politics. Sure, she's pandering the way the Democratic Party does on almost every issue. Mm -hmm. But why is she addressing Bill O'Reilly? Why is the State Department concerned with Bill O'Reilly? She says she has an obligation to. And she she appreciates the opportunity to do it in more than 140 She does not have an obligation to, but she thinks she has to, and she wishes other people would too. I do believe it is a fair criticism of not just the the State Department, but the entire Obama administration to conduct most of their both domestic and foreign policy debates as though it is 
cable news. And not only as though it is to interact with cable news, the position of Fox, the position of individual pundits, the support or lack of support of MSNBC has been of paramount importance to these people. And I don't know why. Mm. Why do they? This is a reduction in yeah, the it's clout. Them. Right. It's so beneath them. Yeah. And uh, by the way, and I don't want to do this Republican, Democrat, Bush, Obama, uh-huh. but I will. I do know a few things, and I do not think the Bush administration would have done this. You can say what they were good and bad on, but if presented with the criticism of an MSNBC host, I think we would have heard a Bush administration spokesman go, I don't watch that. I'm unfamiliar. And maybe doing well, a demean- I have no comment. And maybe in a demeaning way, like, never heard of them. That's right. which would be a little slighted right. and that kind of thing. But no way indulge in an extended, protracted debate over Twitter and from the podium. It's really, like I said, it's embarrassing. It's it's just embarrassing. And if if you want to combat the criticism that that you're in over your head, this is the last thing you would do. Because this makes you look petty, juvenile, Absolutely. immature, Absolutely. Uh, you know, personal, like you are in over your head. Um, let, I, let me remind you... <laughs> There's a lot going on in the world. This is not worth your time or my time. I think it's an abuse of power. But like I said, it's not the first time the State Department has gotten trouble for either misusing social media or seeming totally disconnected from like the sobering events of the day. You remember hashtag diplomacy. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, during the, uh, the, the, the Russian-Ukrainian um, incursion... Jen Psaki, again, tweeted out, the world stands hashtag united for Ukraine. Let's hope that the hashtag Kremlin and MFA Russia will live by the promise of the hashtag. Well, obviously, this led to a lot of mockering, like mo- mockery. What, what is what is the promise of the hashtag? That's where we're at now. Well, this was this is the one that see, I think was accompanied with the pictures, right? Where both Marie Harf and Jen Psaki tweeted pictures of themselves holding up the hashtag, a picture of mm-hmm. uh, 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 white sheet of paper with mm-hmm. uh, hashtag United for Ukraine on it, and then a benign smile and a thumbs up, which, by the way, makes me nauseous on yeah. so many levels. Like, I guarantee you five pictures were taken, like, smile or no smile? <laughs> thumb up or no thumb up? Right. What a cheapening yeah. of policy, of position, of power. Yeah, hashtags seem insufficiently serious for what's going on right now. Um, you know, if this were for sort of, I don't know, pop culture campaigns, maybe, maybe that works. There is no excuse. So they got mocked for that, deservedly. There was also this terribly ill-timed tweet in the wake of the downed Malaysia airliner, let me remind you, shot down out of the sky by pro-Russian separatists. 300 passengers killed. Jen Psaki tweets from her official Twitter account. Great piece by former colleague Alyssa Mastermonico, who defines smart, savvy, and fashionable. It was a piece about Alyssa becoming an editor at Mary Claire magazine and the kinds of fashion stories she wanted to cover. You know what? I'm glad that Jen is happy for her friend Alyssa. Jen is free to call Alyssa on her phone. Or email Alyssa and say, congratulations, girlfriend. I'm excited official, for you. That's from an official account, by the way. An official account. Not Jen Psaki's personal account. No. This is from Jen Psaki's at State Department Spokes account. 
not I, I think at, at any time that would be inappropriate from an official account. But certainly in the wake of a downed commercial airliner, we are all trying to figure out what's happening. It's, and she is tweeting about fashion. It's not sexist to say you're in over your head. It's not sexist to say you're coming off like sorority girls using this like a um, interpersonal communication device and that the podium of the State Department is a place to get in cheap debates. We talk about guys acting like frat boys yes. often, accurately. This is acting like sorority girls. It's the same thing. I completely agree. And as ISIS is taking the city of Mosul back in June, State Department is tweeting about saving the oceans. Now, look, State Department's got a lot going on. You want to have multiple campaigns going on. Fine. Have some awareness. Have some awareness of what's going on in the world, which, by the way, is in the purview of the State Department, and be a little bit more judicious about how you use social media. we got a few loose ends to tie up, Essie. We've got some people on Twitter who are putting more of our plain etiquette questions to the test. There's a few more scenarios they want to run by us. Also, we have a a call or two on um, ISIS and politics. The T-shirt debate has largely... Falling behind us. Yeah, well, because it's over. It's settled. It's not over. It's settled. You're wearing an, you're wearing underwear <laughs> to the office. Let's tie some loose ends and hear from you when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. So I think we established I am pro-recline on a plane. Mm-hmm. You're a little less equivocal. You're, you, you might sort of test out the situation to see. I'm not principled on the recline. I'm a pragmatist on the recline. Right. I, I gauge the yeah. scenario, the circumstances, what, who's the person behind me, how badly do I want to recline. Yeah. All of these factors go in. Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm principled on it. It's there. I'm using it. Um, we talked about the armrest. You're very much of the. I am a muscle yourself in. You I'm got an armrest aggressor. Aggress, aggressor. Yeah. Aggressor. Yes. That's my policy. Okay. Take what's yours. Um. Well, I don't. I don't often because of people like you. I don't often get the armrest because people muscle me out of it. That stinks. You know, when you sit like in the middle and you got to hold your elbows in, you're like, where, where do I? It's like Ricky, yeah. Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights. Where, where do I put my hands? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> On Twitter, by the way, uh, court jester Biden says, by giving up easy access to the restrooms and a faster exit, I earned control of the window shade. Uh, no, I think that's right. I choose aisle seats because I want to be able to get up more freely, um, and I don't want to have to bother people when I get up. The problem with that is I am the one who gets bothered by people sitting inside who want to get up. But I know that going in, and I don't need a, I don't need a window seat. I don't, I don't care about the window. What about, um, we talked a little bit about fast food. Right. There are certain foods that are smellier than others, let's be honest. <laughs> and, you know, when you bring in a Big Mac and fries onto a, a plane and someone is literally right next to you. Well, but you're stinking up a good six aisles in either direction when you do that. For sure. Now, I happen to enjoy that smell. <laughs> but 
Um, you know, that's I, I I I think that's bold. That's a bold move to say you're all gonna smell my food for the next hour. Uh, I don't even like that sentence you just uttered. <laughs> <laughs> But I've done it. I've done it. Like I said, I brought two double doubles from in and out on uh, on a plane. I can't believe I got them through security. This was such a trick. And then you have the trash afterwards because there's no like yeah. place to put your trash. Yeah. And you need a napkin. You're holding your hands like you got mustard on them. Yeah. And you're waiting for the stewardess to come down the aisle. And the guy next to you, you're like, can you stop, Regan? I need to wipe yeah. my hands. Yeah. Then you debate your jeans and I shouldn't do my jeans. <laughs> Not to mention I've eaten before everyone else has gotten served. Like I was just I was eating. And now you're impatient for the water cart, the drink cart. Yeah, the drinks, right, exactly. Yeah, it's a bold move. It's a bold move, but I do it. Uh, what about the foot space below? Well, I don't get in too many confrontations over foot space. I mean, oh, there's a, usually a metal bar. I mean, and you yes. do not stick your foot on the other side of the metal you bar. You would think you don't, but some people do. Oh, that's a clear violation, a fightable violation, I would <laughs> yes, say. Yes, this is what I'm saying. It happens to me all the time because I don't take up all the space afforded in my seat. So a big guy next to me will absolutely not only just put his knee over there, but put his leg into the square space below my seat. Yeah, that's no bueno. That's not cool. Yeah. But they think, what is she going to say? What's this little girl going to say? What about barefoot? Now, um, you take your shoes off. Do you, what if you have the seat next to the bulkhead? Would you use the bulkhead as a footrest? Hundred and ten percent. Me too. I'm a big barefoot person. Uh, I like being barefoot, so I'm immediately barefoot on a plane. It's one of the first things I do. I take my shoes off. Now, let me just say, in my defense, my feet never smell. Oh. There's that's not an issue. Alrighty then. No, that is not an issue. I promise. I I imagine it's not always pleasant for other people to look at other people's feet. I get that. I don't care. I take my shoes off the second I'm on the plane, and they don't go back on. I know where this is going, and I can't until the plane lands. I'm not. I'm not. I can't indulge the buildup. You walk down the aisle barefoot. Yeah, I sure you said do. you go into the bathroom barefoot. I do. So inappropriate. I have. I'm, not gonna, I'm having a physical reaction. I'm not going to disagree. If I see people walk down the aisle barefoot, I will judge you. And it's your fault if you yeah. walk into the bathroom barefoot. That's so nasty. I don't disagree. I can't help myself. I'm just comfortable. You know your feet swell on the plane. Do you go into public restrooms barefooted? No, never. It's no. the same thing. I know. I'm not arguing with you. I'm not defending. You walk it. into a football stadium bathroom barefooted. That's never. what you're doing never. every time on the plane. I would never that do is that. Nasty. More cannon cup when we come back. <laughs> you're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. A recent poll said that 43% of Americans are not even sure who you are. The flipping Mormon. (laughs) How did you feel on the stage? I was dying. I would not want to do this again. It's too much. I have looked, by the way, at what happens to anybody in this country who loses as the nominee of their party. They become a loser for life, all right? All right, that's his over. That is clips from a trailer for the documentary Mitt, which came out, I'd say, about six months ago. It's a fascinating documentary, by the way by a filmmaker who had unprecedented access to Mitt Romney 
for six years. Yeah, over a long time, right? Really, really intimate behind-the-scenes footage with Romney, his children, his wife, as he preps for the debate with uh, President Obama. I, I contend, by the way, I see that had this documentary come out before the election, it would have immensely helped Mitt Romney. It yeah. really humanized him. Right. Really made him sympathetic. And whether or not you like his policies, you come out of watching the documentary going, that's a good man. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I, I heard. And there was some consternation over why he didn't, why, why that didn't come out. Well, you you can only you know I have said this before. I think all these candidates should do something similar to that. Let some sort of documentary, behind the scenes footage of them come out. The problem is they're so terrified of what somebody can do with that. Mm-hmm. Not just what you may say, because mm-hmm. you will theoretically have editorial control over it, but how it can be spun. Sure, right? It's and po- that campaign was particularly risk averse. That's right. That's the that's the word. It's risk aversion. Mm-hmm. Is why you would not. You would not allow that. Um, and by the way, for it to be pulled off, you'd have to let go of control because yeah. if your campaign completely had control of it, it would come off that way. As a commercial. Right. Uh, right. right. No, it's um, a good documentary. But the reason but he's, he's uh, it's funny because you hear Ann in that clip saying, right. I would never do this again. And you hear Mitt Romney say, that This if you, is awful. If you lose, after being your party's nominee, if you lose, you're branded as a loser for life. But that apparently— Singing a different tune now. Well, it, it, because that may not be true. Two, two interesting uh, points of news from this week. Number one, in a, in a poll in Iowa— um, Well, first of all, in a CNN ORC poll from July, uh, it asked people who they vote for in 2012, and Romney won by nine percentage points. Uh, so that's essentially— Yeah, like if they had a do-over. Yeah, with Obama. That's a buyer's remorse. Yeah. Can we get a do-over? Yeah, which actually happens a lot in two-term presidencies. Right. But I think what's what's also interesting is that uh, other Republicans running are reaching out to Mitt Romney for endorsements. Republicans running in Senate and House races are reaching out for to Mitt Romney for an endorsement. And actually, I hear him kind of singing a different tune. I heard him just the other day saying, I loved running for president. Yeah, he said that exact line. I loved running for president. And when Hugh Hewitt pressed him, Hugh Hewitt, the National Syndicated radio host, pressed him on, is there a scenario, are there circumstances where you could run again? This is what he had to say. Listen. You know, this is something we gave a lot of thought to when uh, when early on I decided we're not going to be running this time. And, uh, again, we, we said, look, I, I have had the chance of running. I didn't win. Someone else has a better chance than I do. And, and that's what we believe, and that's why I'm not running. And, you know, circumstances can change, but but I'm just not going to let my head go there. I remember that great line from Dumb and Dumber uh, where uh, where the— uh, So you're telling me I have a chance. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. You remember. You're telling me I have a chance. That's one out, of, one out of a million. So there you go. One out of a million chance. He says he's not running. Circumstances can change. He says he's not running. He said other people he thinks are better positioned, have a better opportunity to win, but— Circumstances could change. And right. listen listen to these circumstances. This is Suffolk University poll of Iowa caucus goers. It showed right now Romney leads the Republican field uh, with 35% of the vote. Mike Huckabee came in, it says, um, this is an article from Politico, an almost invisible second with just 9%. Mm-hmm. Now, look, Romney has name recognition that no other candidate right. has right, right. now. So that, that, he's run twice. He's run twice. Mm-hmm. Got the nomination one. Yep. So there's so a some reason. of that is understandable. That's right. But- I'm less interested in where people are right now on Mitt Romney. 
and more interested in, is he a viable candidate for 2016? Well, I think that's one question, is he a viable candidate? And the other question is, you know, you can still hold, right now you don't have to be a realist. Do you want him to be your candidate? You know, when you look at the field, where does Mitt Romney fall um, on your survey of the potential Republican candidates? Not just can he win, but should he win? Should he be the Republican nominee? Michael in Pennsylvania, what do you think? Well, I believe that uh, when you guys were talking about the documentaries, as far as the documentary, in 2012, there was an anti-Obama documentary that I thought really um, put some things in, into perspective, but yet that didn't seem to, to help uh, Mr. Romney out at all. Are you talking and about I the watched, Dinesh D'Souza documentary, uh, that, that's Ob- correct. Obama's that's America? Correct. That's correct. And there was also another documentary that didn't really get too much play that I saw about Mitt Romney's family in Mexico. That was from um, Vice. I saw that. Yeah, and I don't know why he didn't play that up as far as the Republicans trying to uh, sway some voters who are, you know, Spanish or Mexican. And I, I still don't understand why the Republicans don't look back at history and show different classes of people that the Democrats were, uh, they were the ones that instituted, like the Jim Crow laws and you know, they were the ones really pushing that, and the Republican Party was well, against that. Let me say this, Michael. I think here's something that can explain all three of your uh, scenarios, all three of those documentaries. Um, the the Souza documentary, Obama's America, probably did something to turn out the base, but it didn't do anything to swing independent voters that you need to win an election. And the truth is, however we look at this, people, the, the whole George W. Bush line, wanted to have a beer with the guy. People vote on personality much more than any of us want to admit. And the point of the Mitt documentary is he came off in that as a very good man, somebody you could see in a leadership position. Set aside his policies, set aside his politics for a moment. And I think that's what these documentaries have the potential to do is show the man. Now, if the man shouldn't be shown, if he's actually not good or has a bad personality, that's a different calculation. Anyway, that's that's why I think some of those did or did not swing elections. Well, and I think – thanks, Michael, for the call. I think my criteria for running for president isn't so much do, does, does the candidate fall along X, Y, and Z ideological lines. Um, and it's more is this the right candidate for the time? And my my criticism of Mitt Romney was never personal, and it wasn't really even political. It was he was not the right candidate for the time, and anyone could see that. That at a time coming off of Occupy Wall Street and two failed wars, uh, as as the Democrats would say, um, you know, electing a plutocrat, a a multimillionaire. Um, was probably not going to be the best idea. He was the wrong candidate for the time. Maybe had he had more traction in 2008 and had we not anointed John McCain, um, he could have been the right candidate at the time. But what about 2016? Right. So I'm open. Um, You know, Mitt Romney's track record of quote-unquote losing does not deter me. And there's nothing about Mitt Romney's politics that deters me. I think... You know, the author of um, Massachusetts healthcare law was probably not the guy to run when we're opposing Obamacare. I think 
you know, a uh, former like hedge, hedge fund guy was probably not the guy to run when everyone's mad at the banks um, for the economic collapse. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why Mitt Romney wasn't the right guy at the time. If some of that has dissipated between then and 2016, I am open to a Mitt Romney presidency. If I'm projecting out, I don't see that. I don't see him being the right candidate for the time. I think in 2016, people are going to want someone pretty hawkish. I think people are going to want someone who's um, a little more nuanced on conservative issues. Maybe, um, you know, a little bit more demographically appealing. But uh, I'm, I'm open to Mitt Romney. I'm open to anyone... Because I, I I don't think you pick you pick a president four years in advance, and that's what Republicans yeah. always do. We we've we've decided the last guy who who ran and lost is going to be the guy, and we don't ever ask ask ourselves is this the the right fit for us right now? You know, I guess this is my position. Mitt Romney's not my first choice, but he's also not my last. Yeah, and I would say post two thousand twelve, Mitt Romney has gone up in my book, not down in my book. Now, I disagree with him on policies. I think that um, that many of the things you point to, whether or not he crafted a health care law in Massachusetts, these things actually didn't affect whether or not he won president or not. They affect whether or not he should have and what kind of president he would be. But he very simply got painted as a caricature, like you said, as a plutocrat, yeah. as a banker's friend, as a wooden personality. And you see things like that Mitt document, you realize that's not who the man is. Right. And um, – you know that's how he's gone up in my book. I but I'm I'm waiting to see if there's someone better. I'm not I'm not ready to put Mitt Romney as as the man. Me neither. I, and I think there's going to be someone more appropriate for the climate, right? Than Mitt Romney. All right, let's take a break. Um, you've got a big debate. It's uh, the NFL launched on Thursday, and it comes back tomorrow, first big Sunday of the year. And you want to debate not what happens on the field, but what happens off the field. Yeah, I do. When we come back on Kane and Cope. You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Got done debating Mitt Romney. Where is he in your pecking order for GOP candidates right now? Is he more viable, less viable, gone up, gone down in your book? Jason in D.C., what's going on? To point out this, uh, the whole political system is basically run as if Coke and Pepsi have control of the soda market. And I'm, I'm going to give you a quick example. That they want to talk about voter access. So there's always something about like a 95-year-old black woman in Mississippi who doesn't have ID. But what they're missing out on is the fact that when candidates who are qualified to be on the ballot are in races, the media will not cover them. And likewise, they're prevented from actually being in debates. So I'll give you a quick example. In the state of Virginia, a guy by the name of Rob Sarvis, who was a libertarian, ran for governor. He got 6.6% of the vote. Now, they wouldn't put him in a lot of the debates because he wasn't polling 10%. Now, of course, the question is, what would he be polling if he was included in all of the debates? So Sarvis is actually an attorney, went to Harvard, uh, 
you know, has multiple math degrees. I mean, the guy's a basic genius. And the thing that's funny about it is, as an attorney, the Virginia Association of Attorneys put on the debate for the Senate race, which he's now in, and they left him out. And then you're sitting here, you know, you're talking about, you want to talk about Kentucky. Well, there's this three-person race. It's McConnell, Grimes, and a guy named Patterson. And the funny thing about it is they keep talking about the polls. Oh, Mitch McConnell's this or that. And then it's like they're citing polls where they don't include the third person. So this whole idea that you somehow think that we're going to have a discussion when people like Jill's, uh, Jill Stein and Gary Johnson were kept out of the presidential debate is really harming the American public. Yeah, I think you're right. There's no reason for these people to be left out of debates. Uh, At some point, you have to put a threshold on it. So when the Republican Party had 10 candidates up there and you have a limited amount of time, you have to put some threshold. And at the time, it was whether or not you were pulling 1% or 2% at various debates. And I I think you do have to set a floor. Yeah, Um, I didn't want to see Jimmy McMillan in a presidential debate. But um, (laughs) if it's two candidates and there's a third out there, I think you're right. I mean, the the public deserves to hear the Yeah, but Jason's right that it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because you don't let the person debate and so they don't poll well. If you if you let them debate, maybe they'd poll better. I mean, it is. It's sort of like a catch twenty two situation. But it's the you, same thing with fundraising, by the way. If you go to, I've heard from political operatives. If you go to fundraisers and you say, "We need ten million dollars for my candidate. We need a million dollars for my candidate." They say, uh, "Well, the truth is, they it's not give, polling well." That's right. We give to the winners. Well, but we'd be polling well and yeah. be winning more with if you'd give us your money. That's, a, that's an endemic problem in all kinds of politics, national and local. But uh, more important things. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I saw a really troubling photograph. It was of Aaron Rodgers, Packers quarterback. I think another Packers player as well. And they were in full denim tuxedos. Not really tuxedos, like Canadian tuxedos. Like full denim. So like denim, like blue jeans, Maybe a denim vest, denim shirt, denim hat, which is, we've discussed before, not a good look. It's not a good look for anyone. Mm. And they got a lot of slack for it. Even my husband um, sent me this photo and he was like, this is appalling. And my response to my husband, the New England Patriots fan, was, at least my quarterback doesn't wear Uggs. Right. Because you know what? what's worse than a Canadian tuxedo? Uggs. Uggs on a man. Uggs on a man. Uggs on a man. I wear Uggs. That's fine. Uggs on a man. And not only does Tom Brady wear Uggs, he models Uggs. Well, I don't want to begrudge a man his paycheck. But... No, but, but, but if you have to pick one as being worse, I win, right? A hundred percent. Like, there is no justification. I so want to disagree with you on everything. Um, <laughs> but man Uggs, no bueno. Well, there's no such thing as man Uggs. And I will say, I can also, you know, I'm fashion forward. We've discussed this. <laughs> yeah. I have forward. an affinity for denim. And the Canadian tuxedo is something I could accidentally veer into. So, for example, Ugh. I like a chambray or what do you call like chamois the, shirt, the the, the denimish type dress shirt with the, jeans, like a denim shirt. Not well, I actually wear those too. I have Wrangler denim shirts. Wow, um, I'll throw that on. I'll throw that with up. jeans. Oh yeah, I wear that to work with. Then like <laughs> not a but not a blue blazer. Are then. you a cowboy? The, well, you know. <laughs> uh, 
and a jean jacket. Those have been in my uh, rotation before. But so your point is, you're not as averse to the Canadian tuxedo as I might be. That's right. And, and yet still, well, but you made you said one thing. If Aaron Rodgers threw a denim hat on there, now it's an outfit. He did. You know, you and I both like Jason Isbell. So yeah. people should look up Jason Isbell. He's a he's a real country singer on uh, YouTube. You can look him up. He has an, uh, a song called Outfit, and <laughs> it's advice that his father gives him as he's going in to be a musician. And the chorus of the song is, don't ever uh, call what you're wearing an outfit. You put a denim hat on, you right. got an outfit on. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers, I believe, was wearing a denim hat as well. It's a bad outfit. I'm not defending the outfit. I'll defend it less than you would defend it. And he's, you know... I'm a Packer fan, but um, I win every time. Tom Brady poses regularly in Uggs, Ugg boots. Yeah. Doesn't I mean, look good doing it either. I mean, luckily, he's got the fact that he's Tom Brady going for him. So however many testosterone get points. get away with it. Well, however many testosterone points Uggs takes off of your scale, if it drops you from a 10 to all a 7. Them. It takes all of them away. Oh, well, then that's... Uh... You think Tom Brady still manages to look manly in Uggs? I don't. He's Tom Brady. I don't know what that means. So what? Uh, what? How many Super Bowls does he have? Three? Uh, Yeah, I think. Yeah. Three Super Bowl wins. I don't know how many MVPs. One of the greatest of all time. Does He's not excuse experimented Uggs. with very oh, what? DB haircuts and fashion. Oh, did you think? What? what I didn't know what you were going to say. What, what he experimented with. <laughs> Giselle? <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> I didn't know where you were going there. Um, so I can't think if I p- pretend I didn't know that Tom Brady modeled Uggs. If I had to invent the worst outfit choice for a man, I would say oh, Uggs in a white Uggs. t-shirt. Uggs. Uggs in a white Uggs. t-shirt. Uggs in an undershirt. Basically, you just described the dude, like uh, from the Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just can't think of, and I want to be jellies? in that pitch The dude wore jellies. Can, I, can, can a man wear jellies? Oh, that's worse. <laughs> no, I want to I I have been in that pitch meeting where Uggs was like, okay, Tom, here's what we have in mind for you. Because he probably had options, by the way, too. And probably was initially not into it. Uggs will give you $10 million. I can get you Nike for $7 million. I, I, th- I think maybe the $3 million difference could swing me. I bet Tom got the call, <laughs> Uggs, what? No. Tom, give it a shot. There's a big paycheck here. Just hear them out. Hear them out. I would love to have been in that pitch meeting. Tom, here's why we think Uggs are right for you. And you are right for Uggs. I would have loved to have heard that stretch. All right. uh, When we come back, the Navy SEAL who transitioned to being a woman. The documentary aired on CNN this week. And we'll have her as a guest on when we come back. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. So uh, on Thursday night, I don't know if you were watching, but on CNN they aired a film called Lady Valor. It's the Kristen Beck story. And if you didn't see it, maybe you remember about a year ago, 
Anderson Cooper did a very provocative interview with Kristen Beck. And Kristen used to be a Navy SEAL named Chris. Chris served 14 tours with SEAL Team 6, some of them. 20 years. Over 20 years. Uh, all over the world, Iraq, Afghanistan, Philippines. Um, won a Purple Heart, as well as many other accommodations and medals. Real patriot. But Chris had a secret that he lived with for a really long time. And that was that he felt more comfortable dressing as a woman. So eventually... He transitioned to she. She called herself Kristen. She came out to her friends and family. Uh, many friends who were in the military, you know, former former SEAL buddies. And is now on a mission, a new mission of sorts. Um, that is multifold. One of the missions is to sort of just tell her story so that people who are either going through this or um, maybe never have come in contact with somebody that was different would have an insight into what it's like, how difficult it is. She's also on a mission to um, sort of be there for other young young folks in the military and veterans who might be in a similar situation. She's also trying to figure herself out. She, she says that she doesn't, um, she doesn't entirely know herself what transgendered is. So she's figuring herself out and coming out as she did also sadly broke up a family. Mm -hmm. She was married two sons who are now, um, in their early teens and, that basically broke broke her family. So her, her other mission is to, to reconnect with that family. I had the pleasure of meeting her on Thursday at, um, or sort of the week before Thursday, before the film aired at a DC screening of it. And, um, you know, we, we talked at length about, about this journey she's on and, and about the film and, and why she wanted to do this publicly. And, uh, it's it's a really interesting story, and I you know, I think some people might be a little hesitant to explore this area, but I would encourage you to see the film. Will you watched it last night, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, is is a fascinating documentary. We're, we're hoping Kristen calls in. We're expecting to talk to her this morning, um, any minute now. But um, you know, one of the things there are several angles in this documentary, several things that are explored and revealed that that I find fascinating when it comes to this this conversation, this debate, this issue. As you said, uh, throughout the documentary, Kristen refers to uh, herself in a as in in a in a gray area, mm. um, a gender gray area, and, and talks about this spectrum of of gender, which I, I find fascinating for one reason. Because when there's so much certainty in in this conversation of what's right and what's wrong, specifically on the side of those who are calling out violations, pronoun violations, um, how you are to assume. Pierce Morgan certainly got into a lot of trouble in some of his debates with Janet Mock. 
But to listen to Kristen Beck in this documentary talk about a gray area where even she doesn't know, you know, what the gender identity necessarily is. Um, I think that's fascinating because if that's the case, it's very hard to indict anybody for being confused or wrong or anything on on dealing with this issue, talking about how we should redress it, how we should refer, understanding someone else's plight. It's, it's, a, it's a near impossibility yeah. if the person going through it is also struggling with the same concept of understanding. Yeah, I mean, she's not, it's interesting because she's not militant in terms of like, this is who I am, get on board. That's right. Accept it. That's right. You used the wrong pronoun. No, she's not. In fact, not, in the documentary, yeah. there's a moment where um, Chris, Kristen's father says she. For the first time. For the first time, right. Yeah. And in, in a casual way, not in like, I'm going to do this now. Right. Just it drops it in a conversation. And we happen and, to witness that moment. And it stops it down, right. Yeah, it's fascinating because her father, this football coach dad, grew up, uh, you know, hunting with his sons from a, a, a family in upstate New York. It was really fascinating to see how his family took on the news of Chris's transformation. Right. This militant, as you'd say, you know, hardcore fathers uh, participates and and his brother uh, participates in the documentary, whereas he has, I believe it says in the documentary, two sisters and a mother that would not participate in the documentary. Yeah, it's fascinating because the brother at one point says, you know, I was a little... It was a little tough for me at first, but girls, you know, his sister, girls are fine with whatever. And yet his mom had a really hard time with it. Well, this is hard. And that's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, you just re- you just reverted right there to using he and his pronouns. Yeah, and it's, I, t- I, I it's, t- it's well. tough because part, part yeah. of the movie you see him as a, as a guy. Oh, yeah. So, and, and you're almost referring to his past life. You know, I don't no, know. I am. So it's tough. When I talk about Kristen now, I, I say she, but, you know, we're talking about Chris's past life, too. Well, here's the other thing, Essie, and this was a fascinating documentary, to see it through the prism of the family. And that is, it, it requires you, and it requires the people in the documentary to visit so many of the assumptions and stereotypes we have about what it may be or not be to be someone who ends up transgendered. And that nothing in... Chris's life leading up to this seemed to, and I only know an hour and a half worth of material, seemed to hint at this, right? Uh, whatever stereotypes we, we would attach, no hint of femininity, and maybe that's not part of the equation, right? And somebody could call me and tweet me and go, you moron, that's clearly not. Okay, you may be right. Mm-hmm. But still, popular assumption would think, that's, oh, I, I'd see this coming. Right. Nothing. No. Well, I mean, if the if, I say nothing. If there's one thing that you see in the documentary, it's that he was angry. Yeah. Yeah, this is a guy who um, his brother said, you know, had a death wish. Kept sort of um, volunteering for tours. And Kristen says now that she was doing that because she didn't want to be a married father and husband. You know, he, he wanted to be a she. And so volunteering for these tours was his way at the time of avoiding all of that personal stuff, not having to deal with it. Um, so he went away. He served. It was compartmentalized. He got to be a SEAL and only a SEAL because mm-hmm. that's so all-encompassing. Said that in the documentary. Yeah. He, all, all, that's all he had to think about at all the right. time. Not and his then, family, not his kids, and right. not his gender identity. Went all in yeah. on SEAL Hardcore. That, that was it, because that, that job is that demanding. Right. 
So he was able to escape this for a long time, but eventually, of course, it came to a head. And so now, as as she says, she's starting over. Right. Um, it's a really fascinating story. We're supposed to have Kristen call in. Doesn't look um, like it's going to happen. I think at this point, if she, if she does, would um, yeah, we'll take her. But if she her. doesn't, I I you know I'd encourage people to uh, see this film. It's called Lady Valor. It'll be airing again on CNN, but also just just look for it. I'm sure it's up online somewhere. It's it's a really good film. It's eye opening. Have an open mind, um, because uh, regardless of what you think, Chris Beck is a patriot Absolutely. and a hero. Absolutely, and that that is very clear in this in this story. It's a good story. All right, we got to take a quick break, but coming up right around the corner, Chris Salcedo's coming up. Mike's later a little later today. We're gonna take a quick break on Cana Cup. <laughs> You're listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. Generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. That one might be my favorite. What? That's your favorite promo? That's your favorite bump in? I think so. Uh huh. Got a happiness to it. So, um, I was, I, like I mentioned, I was, I was fishing in the Bahamas this past weekend. And I don't know if you've ever had this fantasy, but I do this all the time where I think about, okay, if I ever get to own my own fishing boat, what I would name it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever named a boat in your mind? No, but I've admired others, and I yeah. w- I would like to have my own fishing boat. For yeah. example, I've come across one called the Real Hooker, and I really liked that. That's fun. R e e l. Oh, I got it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> would this be like a bass boat? What kind of boat oh, would you no, have? No, 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 no. Offshore. Deep sea, deep sea fishing boat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking, what Seinfeld related boat names could I incorporate here? And I thought of a couple good ones. But then I hit real jackpot because I took this to Twitter and I got a lot of good suggestions. So my favorite one that I came up with is the real and spectacular. R-E-E-L. Yes. Uh, inside Seinfeld. Totally. Well, these are all going to be inside Seinfeld. But it's good. Real it's good. and spectacular. Real and spectacular. I came up with another one. I'm going to say it. I'm, I know it's not politically correct. Uh-oh. And actually, like... I, you know, I didn't tweet it because, uh, you know, people would misinterpret it. But um, I, I remember the episode where um, Jerry's dating a woman named Donna Chang, who he meets on the phone. He assumes she's Asian. She is not. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous. She, they finally meet. He realizes she is not Asian. Yet she starts dropping some weird Asian stereotyped kind of things like at one point she says i tried to get a hold of you on the phone but the rhines were crossed that's right i was thinking crossed rhines would be really funny yeah but totally inappropriate not pc i could probably never get away with it um so i wouldn't i got some really good ones on twitter one said yada 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 spelled like yacht Oh, nice. Is that so brilliant? Another one was sea sponge worthy. It's pretty good. 
That is good. Um, shrinkage. Uh, sloop Nazi. Although I don't know that you can have Nazi on a ship. <laughs> like, I don't know that you'd want that kind of attention, but sloop Nazi, that's pretty, that's pretty clever. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not spelled K-N-O-T. Cute. Cute. <laughs> Fusili Jerry. S-E-A. These are creative. You got some creative right? Twitter for- follows. Bassman. That's uh, from when from Kramer uh, found the license plate that said Ass Man. Ah. Uh, and it belonged to a proctologist. Right. So, so it said this is Bass Man. Did I say shrinkage already? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of good ones. It turns out I'm gonna have to own like twenty boats. Both offshore and bass boats. Bass I, uh, boats we just talk, I, this is a Seinfeld look I'm doing now, right? Yeah, well, you can't see him because this is radio. Will has his white undershirt tucked in to his jeans, no belt. When is it appropriate? With sneakers. That is, that was the Seinfeld uniform. When is it appropriate to tuck in your t-shirt? Never. I think that's the answer. Never? Never. I can't imagine a scenario where you tuck in your t-shirt. It's funny. When you look back on Seinfeld episodes, that is noticeable. It's noticeable that Jerry tucks in his t-shirts, no belt, jeans, sneakers. I also told you, I think, I can't imagine the scenario outside of you northeastern Hamptons going Connecticutites that, are you that to by me? the way, is that what you call it, people from Connecticut? Uh, are, are you, are, are, is this to me? Connecticutians. Um, tucking your um, shirts into shorts. I don't, yeah, I don't think shorts should be tucked into. That happens. That happens. I see that with like Vineyard Vines embroidered belts. Yeah, it's to check out my cute belt look. It is. Yeah, and then like boat shoes or flip-flops. That happens. Yeah, take that shirt out. You look ridiculous. Done. You look like a 50s greaser. Like you should have a pack of cigarettes rolled up in your sleeve. I like that. See? Somebody tweeted me You look me like that. your pony boy Picture in the James Outsiders. <laughs> I think we've established a couple things today that you can wear a white t-shirt. It's not an undershirt. We haven't established that at we all. Did. We did. I think we had a debate about that. Um, we broke through the plain etiquette. We established that my midlife crisis was a success. Mitt Romney's a little too early to run. I can't believe you're doing this swim again. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy talk. Find another find another outlet for your midlife crisis. Find another outlet that doesn't involve maybe show because you said, you know, now I'm not at all. Now I'm not at all concerned about sharks. But that's when that when you let your guard down, that's, that's when, when they, they get you. That's when they come. You tempted fate once and survived. I think you need to just count yourself lucky, move on with your life. You don't do it twice. You do. No, you don't. It's like it's like OJ, right? You got away with it. <laughs> you got away with it. Go away and live live a quiet life. Don't tempt fate again. No. It would be a midlife crisis if you did it once. You're the OJ of swimming. <laughs> <laughs> You're the OJ of midlife crises. I just got to come up with some good new ideas. Fine. Come up with ideas that don't involve sharks. English Channel? What? No. How about that don't involve water? That don't involve water. Me. Or falling out of a plane. Don't do that either. Me, my white t-shirt, and Essie Cup. We'll see you again next Saturday, 9 to noon. Don't Thanks for having that thing us. back here. It'll be back.
Canyon Cup. Up next, Chris Salcedo. Thanks for hanging out on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.